welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. I don't know about you, but uh, in the dictionary of my mind, when I look up the word wait, right beneath it is a picture of the DMV. I had to go to the DMV the other day, and, and to their credit, I mean, I had been to the DMV for a really long time because I hate going to the DMV. And to their credit, uh, they have worked really hard to try to remove or lessen or minimize the wait time involved in a trip to the DMV. And um, thankfully, uh, Carolyn was helping me get my real ID, as opposed to, of course, the fake one that I've been carrying around for all these years. And so in preparation, you know, there's this whole thing you got to do to get your real ID. And so she had scanned in all the documents that, that, that I needed to scan in. And, and she even made an appointment. She's a wonderful woman. If you need a real ID, just back there, talk to her. She will take care of all all of that for you. Uh, She made an appointment for me, like all the steps to help me get in and out of the DMV as quickly as as possible and on top of that I mean so finally the point I'm driving to the DMV I here's how confident I was in all these preparation I took you know my five-year-old with me to the DMV I was driving up to the office you know as I was approaching the appointment time on the way there I got a text from the DMV with my ticket number of course didn't read the text until we got there because safety is important. And there's the, they have a link that you can press, and it shows you where you are in line. I mean, they really had done everything they possibly could do. I arrive at the office a full five minutes before my appointment, because, of course, if you're not five minutes early, you are five minutes late. I walk in the special door designed only for those of us who have an appointment, have it marked. This door is for you. Stepped into the office, right into a line where I waited. And immediately, I started to panic, right? I'm standing, am I standing in the right line? Uh, how long is this going to take? Am I going to miss my appointment because I'm standing in this line? Why are they taking that person over there? First, they don't have an appointment. I'm in the appointment line. What's the point of having an appointment if I still have to wait in a line? Does anybody even know that I am here? And I do feel bad about all of those thoughts because, again, the DMV has worked really hard to try to minimize the process of waiting. And yet, my experience that I've had up to this point in my life with the DMV, well, is that They are inefficient and slow, and they are going to make you wait. And so, I panic. We as 21st century humans, we hate to wait. It feels inefficient. It feels like we are being robbed of the limited minutes of our life. feels like we have somehow lost our battle with the world and therefore we are the losers relegated to waiting as opposed to those who have won 
and therefore receive things on demand. And yet, for all of our technological advances, waiting remains a fact of life. I mean, sure, first-class passengers, they get to board the plane before the rest of us, but then they have to wait in the plane for the rest of us to board. And waiting, and this is going to sound dramatic, and I don't mean for it to be dramatic, it's just, this is true. Waiting always involves some kind of suffering. Intrinsically, when you are waiting, you are waiting for something that you want and that you do not yet have. The fact that you do not yet have what you want means that you are suffering the lack of it. Now, of course, the suffering may vary in degrees. Right? Like waiting for the pizza dude to deliver your pizza is a different kind of suffering than, say, oh, waiting to be freed from being wrongfully incarcerated for 15 years. But there is suffering involved nonetheless. And of course, along with all that, there is also different kinds of waiting. There is, you know, the waiting for something that you want, but you're not quite sure if it is ever going to come. Like waiting for your 2020 tax return. Which, by the way, has not come yet. And I am not sure if it is ever going to come. Because, of course, it is the IRS. And while they are very passionate about getting the money from you, they're not that passionate about giving it back, apparently. So I don't know if I'm ever going to get it. And this kind of waiting well, it falls into the category of what we would call doubt. I don't know. There's also waiting for something that you want, but you are sure is never going to come. This past week, we, our church hosted a memorial service for a family who lost a child away on their college graduation trip. I can only imagine the parents waiting, looking at the front door, hoping, expecting for the child to walk through the door at any minute, and yet knowing the whole time that he's never going to. This kind of waiting we, we call despair. And then there is, of course, the waiting for something that you want and that you know is coming. Like the waiting that happens between the time you order your food and the waitress brings it to you. Or the waiting that you do for your birthday. Waiting that you do for Christmas. This waiting we do is for a sure thing. For something that we know is coming. This kind of waiting. This kind of waiting we call hope. Which is the word that jumped out at me in this psalm as I was looking at it this week. Hope. The word shows up three times in the NIV's translation of Psalm 25. And each time that it shows up, it's translating the same Hebrew word. It's this word kava. A word that literally means to wait for or to eagerly watch for kind of give us a sense of 
this waiting that it refers to, it, it, this same word kavai is used in Job 7.2 when uh, talking about how a hired man eagerly waits for his wages, right? This is waiting, expecting. It will come. I know it will. This is hope. And in a world where waiting in suffering is an inevitable fact of life, hope is essential for our survivor. Bible. Of course, hope is not a natural instinct for us. Hope is actually something that we develop over time. Infant wants food. Waiting for food, cannot get it for themselves. Parent brings food. The infant learns to hope in the parent for their food. It's lunchtime, middle school, and you don't want to sit by yourself at lunch. And so you sit at table waiting for someone to come sit next to you. Your friend comes, shows up, sits next to you. The more that your friend shows up at lunchtime at the lunch table to sit next to you, the more you learn to hope in your friend to rescue you from loneliness. And we do this, of course, in all different areas of life all the time. And our hope grows stronger in the things that most consistently come through us, through for us, or at least in the things that we think most consistently come through for us or will come through for us. We rely on them more and more for our basic sense of well-being, our basic sense of security, our sense of joy in life. Of course, also a common experience in life is the fact that sometimes those things or those people in whom we have placed our hope, that we eagerly wait for, they, well, they let us down. Our hope in whatever it happens to be shows itself to be false. In those instances, we feel a whole bunch of negative feelings. And one of the most prominent ones that actually this psalm points out is the feeling of shame. Verses uh, 1 through 3 there. It's, uh, the psalmist says, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame. Don't let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. But shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. You see, when we hope for something and it doesn't happen, we feel silly. We feel like we should have known better. We feel like everyone around us is, is staring and laughing at us, which, you know, depending on our context, depending on our situation, sometimes they are. When our hope doesn't come through, we are embarrassed. We are ashamed. And so always when we are in suffering of some kind, there is this uh, temptation to be treacherous without cause, as the psalmist puts it. See, we're, we're waiting, we want something in some sort of suffering. We, it's not coming, we don't know if it's going to, we don't, 
And so there's, we're tempted to reach out and we're tempted to victimize others. We're trying to ease our own suffering. And so we manipulate the situation, we manipulate the outcome, we lie, we steal, we are treacherous to make sure that we get what we want. And it happens, of course, over and over again in our world, in our families, in our jobs, in our society, in our culture. And the hardest part of all of that is that it really seems to work really well sometimes. I don't know if you've noticed that. A student downloads somebody else's essay and turns it in as their own, and they get an A. And they get a scholarship to a prestigious university, and they get a really great job. The manager takes credit for one of their subordinates' ideas or one of their subordinates' works and presents it, and all of a sudden the manager gets promoted and gets a raise while the Worker gets laid off as unnecessary. Politician runs a dirty smear campaign against his opponents and makes outlandish, unsubstantiated promises, and they get elected. It's very tempting, while we wait in some kind of suffering, to try the path of treachery to get through it. But, of course, the psalmist here isn't buying it. He's seen enough of the world. He's seen enough of how things, what happens. And he's convinced that putting your hope in your ability to maneuver around others will ultimately let you down, will ultimately lead you to be ashamed, to be proven false before others. But, When we hope in God, when we eagerly wait on God, well, then we can be sure. We can be sure that we will not be ashamed. At least that is how the psalmist here has decided to live his life. But I think in this psalm is not just a statement of what he feels, but I think there's a challenge and an invitation to us as well in the midst of your suffering. If you put your trust in God, if you put your trust in God being who he is, then you will not end up ashamed. He will not let you down. And of course, the suffering that he's talking about in this passage is not just the cheesy, inconvenient kind of suffering, like waiting at the DMV for your real ID and your number to be called. Look at verse 16 there for his troubles, for the list of troubles that this guy happens to be in. He says, turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart. Free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress. Take away all my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Lonely. Afflicted, troubled heart, anguish, affliction, distress, sin, enemies that fiercely hate you. This sounds like real life suffering here. And in the midst of all of this, the surest 
rode out for him is God. First of all, he says, because not only God knows the way out, but he is a willing teacher. Show me your ways, Lord, he writes. Teach me your path. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right, teaches them his ways. God doesn't just kind of leave you there in your suffering. He doesn't wave a magic wand to fix things, but he trains you up. See, he knows how to navigate the sufferings of life. And he is willing to pass on his knowledge to us. God actually has a path out of the place that you are in. He does. And he is willing to show it to you. In fact, one of the reasons why we wait sometimes is that we are in the process of learning what God has to teach us about getting out of the suffering that we're in. And it's one of the hardest things to believe in our relationship with God sometimes. You know, it can be pretty logical to believe that God created the world. I mean, if he didn't, then where did all this come from? It can be somewhat obvious uh, to think that God is good, right? Because, you know, if he wasn't good, then... He would not have thought up babies or puppies or butterflies or sunsets or early morning water ski runs when the lake is just perfect glass. But it can be hard to believe that God actually has a way, a road, a practical approach, a practical solution to loneliness and affliction a practical approach to enemies that fiercely hate us it can be hard even for us church people to believe that the way out of the suffering that we are in is God's way that he knows it and will show us if we wait on The other reason it makes sense to put our hope to wait in expectation for God is that God loves and forgives us. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Verse 10, all the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful to those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, although it is great. Psalmist recognizes here that God's primary inclination towards him was love, that he's always working to secure what is in his best interest. And this love is not based on the fact that the psalmist had done a really, really good job of hiding all of his missteps from God. Right? I mean, sometimes we do this in our relationships. Not just with God, actually, we do it with Everybody, all our people that we're in contact with. We run around trying to keep people from finding out our garbage, right? Run around hiding 
all the negative things about us, the things that we've done that, are, that we're embarrassed about, the things that we have done that are just straight up wrong. And we get to be really good at it. Some of us are experts at it. And so we, we, we're so good at it that we get convinced that really the only reason our loved ones stick with us well, it's because they haven't found out all the bad stuff, all the bad stuff about us. And so we still feel lonely and unloved because even the love that we are offered, well, we're now, we've now convinced ourselves that all that love is simply conditional on the people not finding out. And of course, sadly, that it might actually be true about some of the people in our lives about some of the relationships in our lives. But it is not true of God. Psalmist here, he is, he is convinced of two things. God's enduring love for him, yes, but also God's forgiveness for the things he has done wrong. Verse 7, remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. This guy, he knew, he, he has a checkered past. He knows who he was, and he also knows that God knows who he was. He knows all the things that he has done. It's not perfect. And yet, he was convinced that God would forgive him of all of that. And it's really important to remember these two primary inclinations of God towards us, of love and forgiveness, because they help us remember that the reason that we are suffering the reason that we are still waiting, it's not because God doesn't care. And it's not because we did something that just, you know, ticked him off so much that he's like, oh, you stay there. This is the bed that you made. I might get around to helping you at some point, but not right now. Just think about what you did. We don't have to doubt. And we don't have to despair. God's primary inclination towards you, his main feeling towards you, is love and forgiveness. Those are his two default settings all the time. So we can confidently hope in him. We can confidently wait on him. He is coming for us. I mean, unless, of course, he's decided to break his contract. Uh, when our family was living down in Southern California, we were having some work down in our house, working through a general contractor for the work, a GC, they call him in the business. And uh, so one, of the, you know, one day, part of the project, the whole group of guys, whole team, it came out. They were working on a piece of process, doing a great job, great bunch of people, you know, had really cool music when they were working. And so it was kind of fun to have them around the house, and they were doing great, loved them. And, and in the midst of the project, our family packed up, we went on vacation, kind of expecting, yeah, next day, fully scheduled, we're going to come back, everything's going to be done. It's going to be marvelous. Go come back from vacation. The work's not finished. Actually, not only is it not finished, it's like they had 
dry. It's like the rapture came and only took this team of six guys that was working on our house. I mean, there was stuff like laid on, like things were just, it was, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Well, you know, I guess that happens. You know, projects get delayed, yada, yada. A couple days go by, they don't come back. Finally, we call our GC and we say, hey, you know, it's interesting. Um, yeah, those guys loved them, but they, they didn't finish and they're gone. They haven't come back. And the contractor says, what? They didn't come back? Let me get a hold. Well, two, two or three more days come to go, go by. And finally, the contractor calls us and says, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened to these guys. I can't get a hold of them. I don't know where they are. They're, they're gone. I mean, maybe it was the rapture. <laughs> they just left. Disappeared. They got up in the middle of a contract job and they, well, they quit the contract that they had made. And that, of course, that happens sometimes in life, right? Frankly, it happens more times than it should. Somebody promises to guide you through life, to teach you, care for you, love and forgive you, and so you trust them. You put your hope in them. You figure they are going to be there for you, that they are going to come for you when you need them. But then out of nowhere, that person or entity in whom we had put our hope decides that they're done with us, that they are going home now. Happens to us from all different angles, right? The company that we work for, the person that we are married to, the country that we serve, the friend group that we're a part of. People changing the contract or simply just quitting it all together is just so common that we actually kind of expect it now. We brace ourselves against it. We, 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 we plan for contingencies for this, for when it happens. So much so that we kind of expect it from God. Sure, you love me now. Sure, God, I know you, you forgive me now. Sure, you'll teach me your ways and you will show me how to do life now. But maybe not tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow I will do that one thing that is so heinous, so bad, that you will say, forget it, I am done with you, and walk away. And here's where the personal experience of the authors of these psalms is so helpful. Because they are witnesses to the fact that God is a covenant God. He enters into covenant with his people, which is amazing to think because he doesn't have to. <laughs> I mean, we tend to use our covenants, our contracts in situations where we, we need something from the other person, right? Uh, you know, a football player wants, oh, let's say, $230 million from his team. And the team, oh, let's say, wants that football player to study four hours a week. And so they, they make a contract with each other for the subject. But God enters a contract. God enters a covenant. Even though he doesn't need anything from us. It's as if the football player just signed a contract to play for this team for five years for free. And this is what we hear from the psalmist all the time. God has made a covenant with his people. And on the basis of that covenant, we can trust him. 
We can eagerly wait on him. We can hope in him, knowing that he is going to show up. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful. Verse 10 says, to those who keep the demands of his covenant. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. I love the wording of this last verse there. It's like, uh, not only has God made a covenant with us, but he's actually showing it to us. He shows us the fine print of the covenant with him. There's no hidden clauses that only he knows about. God has made a covenant with us, a contract that he is going to honor. He has obligated himself and his own holy name is the guarantee to fulfilling his contract. And so we can confidently wait on him. We can hope in him. He will show up. In his time. It's this little song written by Sam Phillips that I love. Help is coming, she writes. Help is coming. Not yet. Not yet. No, I, I'm still, I'm, I still got a half page. You can go up if you want. I'm just going to sit there for a while, but it's fine. <laughs> do you know the song? Because you could do it. This is a great song. Actually, I almost asked you to do it. Uh, she says, help is coming. Help is coming. One day late. One day late. After you have given up and all is gone, help is coming. One day late. And I love that song. Because it is just so true, isn't it? Help always comes just a little bit later than you were really hoping it would. Because, of course, we only look for help when we are in some kind of unpleasant circumstance. Some kind of suffering. We only look for help when the world is conspiring against us and we are lonely, afflicted, troubled in heart, anguished, in affliction, distress. Our enemies fiercely hate us. We are looking for help. And it can never come quick enough. It always seems to be taking too long. Help always seems to be coming one day late. And so there's always a moment in which we look to the sky and we say, God, where are you? Which again is a common phrase that we see all throughout the book of Psalms. It's a common phrase I hear in my own prayers. I'm pretty sure it's a common phrase that shows up in your prayers too. It's hard to wait. It is scary to wait. It is uncomfortable to wait. And yet, it is an unavoidable fact of life. In a universe that we share with other people who have free will and have their own agendas and priorities, waiting is a fact of life. So much so that even God, God who is the one person in the universe who could snap his fingers and make things happen instantly all the time, God waits. He waits for you. He waits for me. Second Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, which is a fascinating turn of the tables here, isn't it? 
to think that perhaps the reason we are waiting for God is that He is waiting for us. I don't know what you are waiting for today. What suffering you are in today. But one thing I'm sure is that you are waiting for something. And the invitation from this psalm is to put your hope for the solution of what you are waiting for in God. Put your hope in God being God. Because then, our waiting need not be in doubt. Our waiting need not be in despair. Our waiting, when we are waiting on God, is always in hope. Knowing full well that even though it might feel like it's a day late, we can always be sure that he is coming to rescue us from whatever mess we are in. We can be sure of that. Would you bow your heads? Pray with me. Jordan, you can come up now. And just as Sharon did earlier this morning, I invite you just to let your mind go to the suffering that you are in. Go to that thing that you are waiting for and or maybe the the solution that you are hoping for, recognize that sometimes our, the thing that we're waiting for isn't God. Sometimes our hope is in something else. We're hoping for our money or our society or our company or our family or our friends to come and bail us out. just invite you to ponder what would it be like to wait on God to put your hope for the solution of the thing you are in in God being God God who is always willing to show you his ways a God who always acts in love towards you a God who always forgives your iniquities and does not hold your past failures against you. A God who will forever honor his covenant with you. Put your hope in God. And you will not be put to shame. So God, we, we struggle uh, in our stumbling, weakened faith to hope in you. There are other things that we have learned to trust, other things that we have given credit to for the stuff that you've done in our lives. And so we find ourselves so often looking to other things, other people to bail us out, and then they don't. So this morning we ask that you would direct our hearts, our confidence, our hope, and the solution of our waiting in you and teach us to wait for you to be who you are.